Alrighty, good morning, church. What a blessing it is to be in church with you today. If I haven't met you before, my name's Caleb. I'll be doing the Bible reading for us. So I'll be reading from Matthew uh, 21, verses 1 to 17. So that's the first gospel uh, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 17. I'll just pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for the chance to once again gather on a Sunday uh, to praise you collectively uh, as your people. Father, help us as we hear your word today to be humble, to be reminded of who you are, and to be changed by who you are. Uh, So help our hearts to be molded to be more like your son. Uh, In your name, amen. Once again, Matthew 21, 1 to 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, Say to the daughter of Zion, See your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. So the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany, where he spent the night. This is the word of our Lord. We're continuing our series in the book of Matthew. Please keep your Bibles open. Keep your Bibles open. That's so important for us as we keep digging into God's Word together. Now, friends, I wonder if you've ever um, had expectations of something and you were a little disappointed at the result. I don't know if you've had that before. Maybe it's come when you've tried to bake something Um, and it didn't quite turn out the way um, you wanted. I I had a quick search online for some examples. Here's one example. Oh, actually, sorry. This this one is more of the, you know, when you go and the food doesn't quite match up to what it looks like uh, on the ad. This is McDonald's. 
Um, I'd recommend just not going there as often anyway, guys, just as a live tip. But it doesn't quite match up. It's quite disappointing. Uh, when you look at the ad, it looks so amazing. You open your little Macca's box and it's this squashed little burger. Or maybe, you know, I think this is the next one. I hope I got it right. Maybe you tried to bake something um, and it didn't quite turn out the way you wanted. Here's an example of a Pikachu cake. Um, I'm not sure how your child would appreciate that. <laughs> At least you tried, right? But it, didn't, it doesn't quite turn out the way that you want. Or you know what's the worst, actually? Online shopping. How about online shopping? Especially when you buy from um, overseas, uh, from a not-as-reputable site, perhaps, um, and you wanted, maybe you wanted a pair of shoes, and they came, and they, were, they looked a little bit like that. Um, it can be a little bit disappointing uh, when these things happen. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes, you know, oftentimes we get disappointed, Right? Oftentimes we get disappointed, but sometimes we get pleasantly surprised too. Maybe it's actually better than you thought it was. Your expectations were low. We all have expectations, friends. Uh, the big question that we need to ask today as we come to God's Word is, what are your expectations of Jesus Christ? Because in today's passage, we will see different people. There's a whole bunch of different people looking at Jesus. Uh, they're expecting different things about Jesus, but we'll see that if we see Jesus rightly, we will be completely blown away. We need to get our expectations right. As we come to chapter 21, what happens here is the whole narrative is slowing down. So we come to chapter 21, we've been going pretty fast in Jesus' journey. The whole narrative is slowing down now. So what's happened is Jesus is coming up, um, he's coming from the north, Galilee, and he's traveling down slowly towards the region of Judea, towards Jerusalem. And now everything slows down because we have arrived at the last week of Jesus' life. The culmination of his journey to Jerusalem is now. And he comes from the west of where Bethany um, is, Bethpage, the Mount of Olives, and he's about to head into the city of Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up our story, and we're at point one, the victorious king. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he has arranged for this to happen in a very specific way. He directs his disciples to go ahead and find a donkey and a colt, which is a young male donkey, uh, to be his ride into the city. And this is important. This is very important. Because Jesus is actually identifying himself as someone here. He's actually, this is symbolic of him coming as the Messiah. The Gospel writer Matthew picks this up. Um, Sorry, if you look at Matthew 21, verse 4, have a look at Matthew 21, verse 4 in your Bibles. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this is an Old Testament prophecy. Um, what, what's actually happening here is that uh, there's two Old Testament prophecies here, Isaiah 62, 11, and Zechariah 9, 9. They're being brought together. Isaiah and Zechariah are both prophets in the Old Testament, way before Jesus existed, speaking about these things. And when we see Old Testament prophecy, you know, Matthew especially often says, this is to fulfill what was written back then. We, we aren't just to look at it and say, oh, cool, okay, cool. Jesus fulfills prophecy. That's great. How amazing is Jesus? We... There's deep significance in every single one of these Old Testament passages. And we naturally need to grasp these quotes, the context, what's going on here to understand. So firstly, we're going to look at Isaiah 62, 11 and 12. Have a look on the screen. The Lord 
has made proclamation to the ends of the earth. Say to daughter Zion, that was the quote, say to daughter Zion, see, your Savior comes. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. They will be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord, and you'll be called sought after, the city no longer deserted. Now, we did Isaiah just a little while ago, so many of us are familiar with the context, but the context briefly here is that after all the war, the conflict, the exile by Assyria, Babylon, God's people, they're, they're crushed, but there's hope. There's a glorious new age coming where God's people will be restored. And this hope is centered on one figure. Did you see that? See, your Savior comes. Matthew's pointing to Jesus here as the long-awaited Savior who will restore and redeem Israel as his daughter Zion, his people. In Zechariah 9, the other quote here builds on this theme. Have a look at Zechariah 9 on the screen. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That's the second Old Testament quote. And here, we see this theme being reinforced. We see there is a Savior coming, but the Savior is also identified as being what? Being a king. And what will he do? He comes to bring victory. He comes to bring peace. Verse 10 says, No more chariots, no war horses, no battle bows, because why? There's no more war. Do you know what peace is? It's the absence of all conflict. And that can only come when victory, true victory, has been won. Here we see these Old Testament quotes. As we see them, we see a picture being painted here. It's of Jesus Christ coming as the fulfillment of everything that we've been waiting for. Coming as the long-awaited, victorious King. The King who brings salvation. The bring who the king who brings restoration, the king who ultimately brings peace. Peace. This is what God's people have been waiting for. For centuries and centuries and centuries. The the Jewish people, they they were supposed to be God's special, blessed people, but over and over again, they were, what happened? They were at war, they were oppressed, they were conquered. Do you know how many nations were ruling over the Jews over their history? You, You had Assyria, Babylon, Persia, then Greece came. And at the current time when Jesus was there, it was the Roman Empire oppressing them. God's people, they were shouting out, who will defeat our enemy? Who will save us? Who will restore us to our rightful glory? They've been crying out. And as Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem, Matthew, the gospel writer, unmistakably sees that Jesus will be the one, the Messiah, the Saviour. And it looks like the crowds see this as well. Have a look at your Bibles with me. Verse 6, Matthew 21, verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread the cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
The crowds then went ahead of those ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. A huge crowd awaits Jesus. A massive crowd. And as he rides into the city, they roll out the red carpet for him. They roll out the red carpet made up, though, of their cloaks and tree branches cut, spread out on the road. This is a sign that someone of immense importance is coming. Much bigger than any Hollywood star down the red carpet. And the people, they cry out what is on their hearts. What do they cry out? They cry out, Hosanna! Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna, uh, these words literally mean, God save us! But at the time it had come being, uh, to start being used as just a cry of praise that God is the Saviour, God our Saviour, acknowledging that God saves. And the crowd cries out this in praise and they also cry this out about Jesus that he is who? The son of David. King David, the greatest king of Israel. All the kings would come from his family line and perhaps they see now that this is the king that they had been waiting for. The long-awaited Son of David, whose kingdom will never, ever, ever end. This was the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7, um, the Davidic covenant. If you don't know that passage, you should know it, a key passage in salvation history. Uh, There's certain passages in the Bible we should should know because they shape all the history to come afterwards. Look it up later if you don't, 2 Samuel 7. There's a king coming and his kingdom will never, ever end. As this massive Jewish crowd shouts out in praise, they do so because they see that Jesus is the Messiah. Do you know what the word Messiah means? Do you know what it means? It means anointed one. It means the chosen king. And the crowds cry out in excitement because they know the king is here. Salvation is coming. I don't think we can comprehend this feeling very well here in Australia because we are people who are free. We don't live enslaved under a foreign nation or a foreign enemy. Uh, when, I, when I think of this scene, I can only imagine uh, what the joy might have been like for the Jewish people. Um, but the picture that comes to my mind, the closest thing I can think of is perhaps if you think of maybe prisoners of war, prisoners of war captured by the enemy and they're, they're trapped, uh, they have no hope, but then uh, they're, they're in the jail cells, perhaps hopeless, but they rejoice and cry out because they see on the horizon some helicopters coming in, their friends, their salvation, coming to liberate them. Salvation is here. They can taste it. They can see it. It's coming. And that's how the Jews feel about Jesus. Salvation is here. It's coming. Jesus brings about a big response. But not everyone responds in the same way. Have a look at verse 10 with me. 21, verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. The whole city is stirred. Literally, the word here means shaken. The whole city was shaken. Um, We don't know why. Are they anxious? 
Are they enthusiastic? We, we don't know, but people are asking the question you would ask to if a massive crowd gathered on your street shouting out in celebration. The crowds are asking, who is this? And the crowds who are praising Jesus respond, and they build the picture of who Jesus is. Verse 11, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. You see, the Jews weren't just waiting for a king. They were waiting for a prophet, even greater than Moses. This is what was promised in Deuteronomy 18. And now the crowds are saying this, here is the king, here is the prophet, here is the Messiah. And there are great, great expectations because salvation is coming. But they've only seen part of the picture. This is only a little bit of the picture. And I've got a question for you. I'm going to get you guys to do a bit of work now. Again, don't worry, I won't get you to do this every week, but this is what I feel is appropriate this week too. I'm going to get you to look at some verses. I'm going to get you to turn to your neighbour and just say hello if you don't know them. Uh, Say hello. Um, But just to dig into these passages a bit. Yeah. So here's here's the two quotes. Right, Zechariah 9.9, Matthew 21.5. I want you to have a little chat with your neighbour. What's the difference? What's the difference as Matthew quotes Zechariah and why do you think that difference is there? So turn to your neighbour, have a few minutes. Don't be shy. Just say hello if you don't know them yet. This is a way we can talk about God's word together. Okay, I'll give you guys a few minutes to do that. Yeah. Go, go, go. <clears throat>
Okay. Okay, everyone. Let's bring it. Let's bring it back together. Let's bring it back together. Thanks, guys. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Okay, it's great to see everyone having a discussion about uh, God's Word, Scripture together. This is what we need to do, just keep wrestling with the Word, and you guys have the Holy Spirit with you, if you're a believer, to help you in that. So have confidence as you wrestle with the Word. Uh, there's probably two differences uh, that you notice. One is the translation of lowly and gentle, the difference there. That's not a huge difference, because uh, the original Word had a very similar overlap of meaning range there. Uh, the big difference is the, diff- the leaving out of righteous and victorious. You notice that, right? Righteous and victorious isn't in Matthew 21. Why is that? Well, our next point is this, that Jesus is the humble king. You see, Matthew, the gospel writer, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah, right? He knew. Uh, he knew that Jesus was the Messiah come to bring salvation, just like the crowds knew and shouted and praised. And yes, Jesus, um, Matthew knew that Jesus was coming to bring victory, the victorious king. But I think what's going on here, and I don't know, you know, I'm not in Matthew's head exactly, but I think what's going on here is that Matthew wants to emphasize something different right now. The salvation that Jesus Christ will bring will be done in a way like no other king has ever done. This is a king like no other. This will be the humble king. Think about it. He comes in the, in the, into the city not like any other king would do. He doesn't come with weapons. He doesn't come riding a great war horse in a, a show of strength to stamp his authority, to, to say, look at the glory of the king. It's the complete opposite. He comes peacefully, lowly, riding a small donkey. What sort of king is this? This would be like uh, the Queen of England riding into the capital on a child's bicycle. Ridiculous, right? Well, that's what's going on here. What an outrageous image. Who is this Jesus? The gentle king. That's who he is. The original word here can be translated meek. Lowly, humble. This is a king like no, other, like no other. And as the crowds, they shout in passion. They're shouting in passion. And it's a good thing because they're praising the king. But they're, they're a little bit off. Because they're expecting a nationalistic military king that would come to overthrow their enemies. Their hope, this has been their hope for generations. Someone's going to come and defeat the Roman Empire and depose them. The Apostle Peter, this is how he thinks, right? And he's actually rebuked by Jesus because he's holding the same hope. And perhaps the crowd, you know, they've seen the donkey. They've been reminded of Zechariah 9 that this is a symbol of the Messiah to come. He is here, but they've missed all the subtleties of the prophecy. That this king would be humble, lowly, gentle. Now, it shouldn't be a surprise, really, because remember how our king came into the world. He came born into a dirty feeding trough of an animal. And his whole life was not riches and wealth, but traveling without a home, without a place to lay his head. His whole life was lowly. Yes, he will bring victory. Yes, he will bring peace. But he's going to do this 
in the lowliest and most humble of ways. This is a king like no other. But before he does that, there's a surprise in store too that Jesus is also the revolutionary king. Sorry, I missed all my pictures. Spent all my time looking up donkeys and stuff and... Oh. <laughs> well, point three, the revolutionary king. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Now, I know I just said Jesus is a gentle king. This doesn't look particularly gentle, does it? But we are to see something else important here about Jesus' mission. He's painting something really important. What, what is happening here is Jesus enters the temple and he flips tables, right? It's not an uncontrolled outburst of anger like maybe we would bring about. This is a deliberate act. It's controlled. It's, it's, it's planned. And he's doing this to point us to something, that he's coming here to overturn everything. He's coming here to start a revolution. He's reforming the system, and if we look at the Old Testament quote, here's another Old Testament quote. This section's filled with them. In verse 13, we will understand this better. This is a combination of Isaiah 56, verse 7, and Jeremiah 7, verse 11. But we'll just look at Isaiah 56. It's just coming up on the screen. This is the quote. This is where it comes from. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, all nations. This verse in Isaiah speaks of a time where the outcasts, the foreigners, those that don't belong will come and that they will worship. They will worship God. It highlights God's heart that all may come to worship him. But Jesus looks at the temple and what does he see? He sees the complete opposite. He sees the complete opposite. You know, the store owners... And the money changes, all what's happening here. They had set up their stalls um, in the court of the Gentiles, which is the outer region, and not even in the temple proper in one sense, just the courtyards outside. So that's where all the stalls were, selling animals, changing money. They were, and they were squeezing out space for the foreigners to come and pray to God. This is a, another example of religious rituals, rituals being prioritized over what actually matters. The stalls were there because they didn't want foreign currency in the temple. They didn't want road-weary animals to be sacrificed because that wasn't good enough for God. So the temple leaders, they provided all these stalls to attend to all these ritual concerns. The, the leaders, they approved this stuff. And they did so thinking that, yes, this is good. This is what God wants. But it completely went against the heart of what the temple was supposed to be. It's not a place of commerce and business, a place, it should be a place of unhindered worship and prayer to God. The temple was supposed to facilitate people coming to God, but they were being squeezed out by this money-making enterprise around them. And once again, the religious leaders have completely missed the point. A big theme in Matthew. They entirely focus on religious rituals. They entirely focus on these rules, and Jesus is righteously angry at them. As Jesus overturns the tables, it's a powerful symbol of what he's come to do. 
He's come to overturn the entire system of religion that's been set up. Right? He's come to bring about something new. He, he's declaring that he is done. He is done with the temple. He's done with all that it represents. This whole system, it's defective and needs to be reformed. A revolution is coming. You see, Jesus knows that attention to all these external religious rituals ultimately does not bring about the heart change that his father desires. The fact is the sacrificial system was supposed to facilitate worship of God, but it became the reason the temple was defiled, like a den of robbers. And Jesus is going to do something about this. He comes as the revolutionary king to turn everything upside down. How? Well, before we get there, we're going to sum up quickly. We've seen, what have we seen about Jesus? We've seen that Jesus is the victorious king. We've seen that Jesus is the humble king and that Jesus is the revolutionary king. But how do all these things come together? Especially as some of these aspects seem almost contradictory to each other. How do they all fit together? Well, we're at our next point, that Jesus Um, as we see the king and the cross. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, he has no doubt in mind what's going to happen. He has no doubt in mind what's going to happen. Way back in chapter 16, he says this, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. His death is waiting. He knows this when he enters Jerusalem. He's marching towards the cross. And let's stop and think about that for a minute. Let's stop and think about the cross for a minute. What what was it? The cross, this symbol of ours. The cross was an ancient execution method by the Roman Empire designed for its brutality and its shame. So harsh that no Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified by that, even if they were criminal. That's what the cross is. But at the same time, for some reason, this cross is a symbol of our Christian faith. What's going on there? Why does the cross matter so much? Because the cross is the culmination of Jesus' purposes in this world. The cross, on the cross, we see the fullest expression of who Jesus Christ is. On the cross, we see his glory, his glory who he is. I'm sure later on, very soon, by the end of this week, this is what's going to happen. The crowds are going to witness Jesus being nailed to that cross and dying in shame and in pain and disgrace. And they're going to be thinking to themselves, what is going on here? This isn't what we expected. This this is supposed to be the Messiah. And they're going to be deeply, deeply disappointed. But what Jesus will do is it will exceed anything they could have hoped for. And let me tell you something. Unless we too take the time to remember the cross again today, to dwell on the cross, our view of Jesus will be just as inaccurate as the Jews before us back then. Our view of who Jesus is and what he's come to do and what sort of king he is, we need to enlarge that, enlarge our expectations, because I think our expectations are too small of Jesus Christ. Because we see these things. On the cross, we see Jesus is the victorious king come to liberate us from our enemies and bring us salvation. 
But you are thinking far too small if you're thinking just about any earthly empire like the Romans. We are talking here about the undefeatable enemy, sin and death. Jesus has come to defeat the undefeatable enemy. Brothers and sisters, sin is no longer your master if you follow Jesus Christ. Did you realize that? Jesus has taken your sin upon yourself. He has paid the penalty you deserve so your shackles can be broken. You are free from the mastery of sin. Sin doesn't have to be your master now. His blood brings victory over sin, which means also you have victory over death itself. We see Jesus is the victorious king on the cross. And on the cross, we also see that Jesus is the humble king, the king who brings salvation in the most shameful manner possible. Behold your king. Look at the cross. See your saviour stripped naked and blood dripping from his head as thorns dig like daggers into his skull. See the torn flesh of his back ripped raw by the whips of his torturers. See this frail, weak figure slowly suffocating to death. See the people jeer and spit in his face. What you're seeing is the king of heaven lowering himself to die in the most humiliating way possible. If you actually think about this scene, it's, it's hard to watch. It's hard to even comprehend. You want to look away. See the humble king. And on the cross we see Jesus as the revolutionary king who has turned everything upside down. Forget about temples. Forget about rituals and sacrifices and ceremonies. On the cross, Jesus dies as the ultimate sacrificial lamb once and for all, which means he has opened up the way to God. If you want to worship God right now, today, If you want to be in his presence today, if you want to draw near to God, guess what? You can, because Jesus has died to make that possible. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus has brought about a worship revolution. Brought it about. In the cross, we see the victorious king, the humble king, the revolutionary king. And as we look In the cross, we see everything come to its fulfillment. We see who Jesus is in its fullest expression. And if we really dwell on the cross, if we really think about what has happened on the cross, and like our song that we sung before, the old rugged cross, everything that comes together, this sacrifice of Christ Jesus for us, it should leave us in awe. It really should. We should be just left awestruck. But so often it doesn't. Here's what I think our problem is, friends. I think when we talk about the cross and we think about the cross, what we do so often is we take a a quick look at the the cross. That's what we're doing. We're just taking a quick look. We're taking a little cursory sideways glance at it. All right, Jesus died for my sin. Cool. Yes, good. But I think what we need to do is we we need to gaze at the cross We need to soak in what the cross actually means for us. Behold the wonders of the cross. Behold your king. 
the king of the universe, dying the lowest of deaths to bring us true victory, to bring us real hope, to behold our king who's infinitely good and loving and gracious and he sacrifices it all for us who don't deserve it. And we need to gaze intently at him, the one who death could not hold, our king who doesn't stay dead but rises in ultimate victory to be enthroned as king forever and who will come back again to bring about the final victory. The cross is his path to glory. So I'm asking you today to not just glance at Jesus Christ, your king, but to behold your king. You glance at a light bulb, but you behold a sunset. And that's our call for us as his people, to behold him and to be in awe of what he has done. We are called to behold Christ our King, Christ crucified, Christ our Saviour. And as you do that, friends, a response is needed. This section finishes with a picture of different responses to Jesus. Pick it up in verse 14 as we finish this section. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying? They asked him. Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. The blind and the lame, the needy people come to him in the temple and he heals them. The revolution's happening already. The children, once again, once again, they're, they're all through Matthew, if you look through Matthew. The children, once again, they come to him, shouting in the temple court, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David. What's the other response? The chief priests are indignant. Jesus, what are these kids doing? Do you see these kids? What are they saying? What is the response that's pleasing to Jesus Christ here? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. This is a quote from Psalm 8, a majestic hymn of praise to the excellence of God. And it seems that the simple faith of children that recognizes the truth of Jesus Christ most clearly is what is commended here. Should it be a surprise that Jesus is hammering the same message over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew? That in the end, he doesn't really care about fancy religion. He doesn't want legalistic rule-keeping. He doesn't want an emphasis on elaborate ceremonies. What he wants is for everyone, for all of us to gaze upon him and who he is, recognize his kingship, and praise him, and praise him, and worship him. Like these little children who know very little, they know very little, but they know that this is good and right to praise Jesus Christ. Our call is to look at him, to gaze at him, to, and devote ourselves to him like little children who love their father and cling to their father with all of their life in deep dependence. Think about this. The kids, they don't, these kids here, they don't know much about the cross. In fact, they don't know anything. They don't know anything about the cross and the resurrection yet, but this is how they respond to Jesus Christ in praise and worship because they know that he is the king 
And how about us? We've got the fullest picture. We've seen and heard the gospel. We know the fullness of Jesus Christ revealed to us and what he has done. How much more so should we be responding in praise? That simple response that Jesus loves. You see, you coming to church regularly isn't what ultimately honors God. Your serving isn't what ultimately honors God. Your Bible reading isn't what ultimately honors God. You being nice isn't ultimately what honors God. But it's a heart devoted to Jesus Christ. Fully devoted. A heart that can't help but live for Him. A heart that can't help but cry out His praises because of how good and loving and amazing He is. When was the last time, when was the last time that you just couldn't help yourself but to cry out, man, God is so good. God is so good. I'm so thankful for what Jesus has done for me. When was the last time? Let me tell you, this will only come if you stop and you take time to actually behold your king. Maybe you haven't been doing that because you've been too busy doing religion. Maybe you've been so busy doing religious stuff that you've forgotten to actually look at who you're doing it for. Maybe if Jesus came to you, there would be some tables in your life that need to be overturned. You need to behold your king. And you know how this happens, right? You know how this happens, surely. Like, how, how do we behold our king? How do we look at our king? How do we see him more and more and more? Well, it's through the precious gifts of scriptures. You know this, right, friends? This is where he reveals himself to us. Jesus Christ is on every page. And this seemingly mundane, normal thing we do, reading the Bible, this is our window to Jesus Christ's glory. This is how we see his glory. So how is your Bible reading going? Honestly, how how is it going? I'm sure you've got an excuse. I've got hundreds of them. But if we, as God's people, if we as CP Church want to live lives of fully devoted worship to our King, let me tell you that it will not happen unless we start right here, right here, and we just look at Jesus Christ. (laughs) My challenge to you is this. If you want to get really practical here, and I think we should, right? I want you to spend the next month beholding your King. Not just the next month, but, you know, your whole life should be this. But let's start here. And here's my little challenge that I just came up with, right? I didn't ask the staff or anything about this. I just decided to come up with it, right? I want you to do this. To read the Gospel of Mark before Christmas. It's the shortest gospel. Anyone can, we can all do this. If you're Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't matter. This is something important for us all to do. Read the Gospel of Mark before Christmas. It's half a chapter a day. You know, they'll take 30 days. You know, you, you don't have to, you know, there might be days you skip sort of thing, but you've got plenty of days before Christmas to do that, you know, half a chapter a day, and here's two questions to ask, what is, what is this passage showing me about Jesus, and how should I respond, okay, two simple questions, do you think you can do that, I think we can all do that, I'm going, I'm going to be doing this with you guys, 
Because I think I need just as much as you to be keep beholding Jesus Christ amidst the busyness of life and ministry and all that's going on. And this is my challenge leading up to Christmas, because at Christmas we remember our Saviour coming into this world to save us. I want us to keep preparing our hearts for that as well. But as we do this simple thing, this next month, if we spend it beholding our King, we're going to see some real change. As you do this, friends, as you look at Jesus more intently and more closely, you will realize he is far bigger, far bigger than any human expectation we could ever have. And as we behold our king and dwell on who our king is, we will praise him and we will worship him. And that is what he deserves. Let me pray. Father God, we praise you. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Saviour, our victorious King who, brings, who comes in uh, and defeats death, who comes with this power that we can't fathom, but who does it in a way that we would never imagine, humbly dying on the cross, sacrificing himself for us. Forgive us for when we just take this in such a fleeting way We just take a glance at the cross. We pray that you'll help us to really look at Jesus Christ, who he is, and may we respond, respond in praise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to keep reflecting, and we're going to take another opportunity to dwell on the cross in a time of Holy Communion. What a great way to respond to just really dwell on the cross. If you, didn't, if you are a believer in Christ, this is a sacrament for those who believe in Jesus Christ. Um, you would have received a little uh, juice and bread packet. If you don't have one of those, please put up your hands and the host team will come and pa- pass you one of those.